Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I have a confession today. I think I overprepared. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have 13 pages today. It's pretty ironic, but I have to hurry through my sermon because I have so much content. But yo, you'll find out why it's ironic in a short span of time. But okay, so how many of you were here for my sermon uh, two weeks ago? Yes, two weeks ago. Yes, you know we explored this uh, idea, this concept of. Uh, discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus. Amen? Right? You know, we talked about how we want to build this church, you know, upon Christ as our cornerstone. And that looks like uh, calling all Christians to live the life of a disciple. Amen? Disciples are not just uh, the passionate Christians, but it's a life, it's a standard in the scripture that all of us are called to live by. Amen? Right? Come on. If you want this to go faster, you've got to holler back. A hollerback preacher. All right. Well, you, we know in the scripture that Jesus was a lot of things. He was a lot of things. We know him best as the Son of God, as uh, the Messiah, which means a long awaited king of Israel and the world. And we know him as the Christ, meaning the anointed one. But if you are a first century Jew in that day and you were in synagogue and Jesus shows up to teach the word, you would most definitely categorize him or associate him as a teacher or a rabbi. Everybody say rabbi. Of the 90 or so times the scriptures record of people interacting with Jesus, upwards of 60 times he is called rabbi or teacher. Rabbi or teacher. And this has staggering implications on the life of a believer, on what it means to follow Jesus, follow Christ as our rabbi. In the first century, the disciples of that day, when they were living out their lives of apprenticeship under a rabbi, they had three goals. Everybody say three goals. That three goals, uh, let me list it down. One was to be with their rabbi. They were called to be with their rabbi 24-7. Apprenticeship, discipleship was not an eight-to-five thing. It was a 24-7 thing. They were called to be with their rabbi at all times. The next thing they were called to do was to become like their rabbi. And the disciples would model uh, the life of the rabbi. They would adopt certain mannerisms. They would glean from the wisdom of the rabbi. They were on a mission to become like the rabbi. And the last thing they were called to do was to do what their rabbi did. At the end of the disciples' apprenticeship, his rabbi was said to him something along the lines of, now you have ended your discipleship. Now go and be a rabbi like me and disciple others like you have been discipled. So the disciple... A person who studied under a rabbi had three goals. To be with his rabbi, to become like his rabbi, and to do what his rabbi did. And what does it mean for us to be disciples, apprentices to Christ? It means that we are called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. It is to organize our life around these three goals. And two weeks ago, we released what we call our passion statement, which is this. We exist to help all people. Come on. All people, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the works of Jesus in our city. Come on. Yes, you have this memorized tattooed somewhere? You know, we don't believe in tattoos, okay? Ask Max about tattoos, apparently. (laughs) 
the great danger of our faith is not that we will renounce our faith. The great danger of our faith is that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. To live this life abundant, this life that Christ so promises us in the scripture, it means that we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You know, it's pretty simple mathematics. If you desire such a, such a life, you have to have the lifestyle that matches it. Your lifestyle produces the quality of life that you experience. Amen? The abundant life, this great, great joy, peace, and hope that Christ promises us is found in His way, in His way of living, in His way of doing life. And the Bible says that when we do so, when we follow the way of Jesus, when we live as disciples, when we be with Him, become like Him, endeavor to do what He did, Scripture tells us in that in doing so, we will experience rest, or in some translations, life for our souls. Today, I want to talk about... Um, you know, the, the, the aspect of being with Jesus. I want to talk about an aspect of my discipleship with Jesus, my journey with God that, you know, I've been working on for the last few months and uh, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. But uh, I, I believe this will really enrich your faith and your soul. Amen? How many of you are with me? Yes? Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to learn from your word this morning. Lord, we Know that your word is not an archaic piece of literature, but it's living, breathing, and it speaks to us. God, we ask that in this moment, that even as we open from your holy scriptures, God, that you will download in every heart a word in season. God, we ask that people will leave here being impacted by your Holy Spirit with a word from you, that people will not leave here impressed by the depth of my research or the eloquence of my speech, but will leave here impressed and impacted by your very Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask, have your way in this place. Have your way in this place. We love you. We honor you. We invite you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. How many of you brought a physical Bible to church today? Thank you, thank you. Awesome. Matthew chapter 11. We're ready. Let's read this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Come to me all, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I've never been challenged by uh, scripture to this degree in a really long time. But as I was reading this passage, I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there. You know, how many of you can say that you are at complete rest? You know, you... Have your burdens gone? Your yoke is easy. Yoke is not a yoke. Uh. Yoke is easy. The burden is like, how many of you are at this place of like, just zen? Anyone? But Christ, Christ promises that, that when we adopt His yoke, our burden is easy. It's light. You know, uh, a rabbi in, in that day was a teacher who would travel from town to town, catch this with his yoke. And that was a first century euphemism for a set of teachings or way of reading the Torah or Bible in his day. To follow Jesus means that we take on his yoke. And the Bible says that when we take on his yoke, our burdens fall away. We find rest 
for our souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me read to you uh, this passage in the message version. I never quote the message version, but this one is good. One of the good ones. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn, well, this is amazing, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. My way is a way of grace. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. It's light. It's easy. Dallas Willard, a philosopher and a theologian, uh, has a quote. He, he calls it the secret of the easy yoke. In describing this passage of scripture, let's put that quote up. He says this, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Next slide. Our mistake to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently, and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. Now, that's a lot of words, but I'd like to paraphrase that huge chunk content we just read. We just read. I'd like to say this. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The way of Jesus is just that it's a way of life, not a set of theology or ethics. In the church today, we talk about, a lot about theology and ethics. Theology meaning uh, a study of God, what the Bible is about. Ethics meaning what is right, what is wrong, but we often overlook lifestyle. And lifestyle is where the money is at. It's the core essence of what makes Christianity, Christianity. And to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a student of the way he does life and imitate it, long to live the same way. Amen? That's what we're called to do as disciples. To examine the life of Jesus, to imitate him, to live as he did. Right, and I want to look at another passage of scripture and we'll get to the main content, the filet mignon in a bit. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. This is a chunk of scripture. Follow me. It's a really familiar story, but here goes. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Next slide. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes... I will be healed. Next slide. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. Next slide. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. 
He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from the suffering. Are you still with me? Yes? Next slide. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother to teach her anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And this is a really familiar passage of scripture, and we know as we read down uh, the rest of uh, that chapter, we know that Jairus' daughter was resurrected and she was healed and all that good stuff happened. But, but one of the observations I want to point us to in this set of scriptures that we just read was an observation about how Jesus carried himself out and how he lived in the midst of all the demands around him. See, he was on a mission. He was going to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. And he was going to do the kingdom stuff, the mission work. He was going to fulfill a demand. And he was going there, and then someone placed a demand on him and then touched his cloak, and he, went, he, he pauses for a moment and goes, who touched me? In the midst of a sea of crowded people. Now, imagine if you were Jesus' disciple in that day. Wouldn't you have gone like, hey, Jesus, you know, we've got to hurry, man. That person is dying. We've got to mosey along, you know. But Jesus took his own sweet time. He was unhurried. He was unhurried. He wasn't swayed by the demands of others, the crowd, or any obligation. He was unfazed. New Age people call him Zen. Culture today would say he was chill. He would, he would I would almost... I would say almost defiantly at peace. He was unhurried. When Dallas Willard, you know, the, the man I just quoted, was asked to describe Jesus in one word, he, he described Jesus as relaxed. Jesus was relaxed. And that's somewhat mildly offensive because it seems Jesus doesn't care. He, he you know, he isn't bothered. You know, after waiting... 30 years to begin his ministry, his first ministry act was to follow the Spirit into 40 days in the wilderness. Consider, for instance, what Jesus did when he learned about Lazarus's serious illness. Jesus, who heard about his close friend and waited two days before going to him. Catch this. Jesus was engaged and active, but he was unanxious and unhurried. He was unanxious and unhurried. You know, a lot of... Uh, you know, the Bible language is lost in our day and age because in that day, they were primarily in the agrarian culture, agriculture culture. And today, we live in big cities. We don't have party fields. We don't plant crops. And a lot of these languages, you know, it's, it's lost on us. But here's what a yoke would mean to the people in that day. A yoke was a wooden cross piece that was fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to a plow or a cart that they had to pull. A yoke was almost used, always used to tie two animals together an oxen or donkey to carry a load or plow a few. Let's have uh, my next quote up. Now this is a New Testament scholar describing what that yoke of Jesus was. You know, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Next slide. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Plus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that the obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, his way of teachings will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way that we have been living. 
this is Jesus' invitation in those two scriptures that read. I know we took a long journey to get here, but this is the invitation. Come alongside me, match your pace of life with mine, and it will be easy. It will be easy. That means we have to radically alter our whole lifestyle and match the lifestyle modeled by Jesus in the scriptures. And by lifestyle, I mean the rituals, the routines, and the rhythms of your life. My suggestion to you is that when life gets heavy and burdensome, you have moved out of the yoke of Jesus and adopted the way of the world instead of the way of Jesus. Burden, uh, unburdensome, light, and easy. And the opposite of the yoke of Jesus, of matching our pace of life to his, is hurry or hurry. Everybody say hurry. To live unhurried is not about the speed at which we move and the amount of things we try to accomplish in a day. It is especially about our attitude, our frame of mind, our soul. Hurry is a symptom of exaggerated self-importance and trying to do too much. It steals from us the precious moments at hand. Catch this, if Jesus was in a hurry to get to Jairus' house, he would have completely missed the women who needed a miracle. And that story would have been, it, it wouldn't have happened, it would have been lost. But today, you know, preachers preach from it all the time. We glean so much from that exchange that Jesus had with that woman. If Jesus was in a hurry, that story would, wouldn't exist. Author and pastor John Ortberg, who was mentored by Dallas Willard, amazing guy. This sermon again is brought to you by Dallas Willard. For some 20 years, tells of this story. Ortberg was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek then, easily the most influential church in that day. He was a famous Bible teacher known all over America. And the story goes, he calls Dallas Willard one day because he felt stuck in his walk with God. He felt stuck in his discipleship to Jesus. He felt stuck in his spirituality. And he calls Dallas and he asks him, what do I need to do to get that breakthrough to shift things around? there was a long silence on the other end of the line. The story goes, because with Dallas, there's always a long silence. And then Dallas makes this statement, and he, he, he says this to John Albert, and we, let's have the quote up. He says this to John. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Let me read it again. Hurry... It's the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. You know, if uh, someone were to ask you today, hey, you know, in Singapore, first world country, metropolitan, progressive, what is the great enemy of your spirituality? What will you say? You would say, you know, maybe, I don't know, secularism, pornography, ISIS, maybe, you know, fill in the blanks. But my guess is that many of you, not all, none of you would say hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life nowadays. My sermon title for this morning is this, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I believe that when we rid ourselves of hurry, we will experience the life the abundant life that Jesus offers to us. To be made human hinges on two absolute truths. One, we were made in the image of God. And that would imply that, you know, we have this latent potential in us to rule and reign on the earth, that we were made 
in the image of Almighty God, we can do amazing things. We are made to rule and reign as kings and queens, the Bible says. But the other truth is that we were made from the dust of the ground. We were formed and fashioned from the dust of the ground. That says to us that we are mortal, not Im- immortal. We are limited, not infinite. We have limitations as human beings. We are not gods. And one of these limitations that we share collectively as human beings, you know, whether you're young, old, rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful, no matter what you're doing, is the limitation of 24 hours in the day. We experience that limitation collectively as a, as a human race. Our grandchildren, written by British economist John Keynes, would work, would work around... Uh, he says this, okay? He says that our grandchildren, and this was written uh, in the 1930s, he says that his grandchildren would work around three hours a day and probably only by choice. Economic progress and technological advances had already shrunk working hours considerably by his day. And there was no reason to believe that this trend would not continue. Social psychologists in that day began to fret whatever would people do with all their free time. He thought that his grandchildren would work only three hours a day. This sounds like a dream compared to what most of us experience in everyday life. Ours is a culture that values the hustle, the overzealous achiever, and the omnipresent email. We have a bias towards hurry as a culture. You know, Our culture values speed, efficiency, quickness. Waiting is bad. Getting what you want now is good, period. The bend towards speed is supported by our language. The first three meanings for the adjective slow are sluggish, time-consuming, and stupid. Merriam-Webster offers more than a dozen definitions of slow. Half are negative and half are neutral. Only one feels positive, not hasty. The definitions offered for fast are far more positive in tone. Being unhurried doesn't mean lazy, uninvolved, casual, or careless. These four words exposes our culture's false thinking. Hurry is efficient, hurry is productive, hurry is evidence of my importance. So you put on that face, you know, I'm, I'm hurried. Consider the answer we get when we ask, how are you? More often than not, the response is, busy. Although the word is often said with exasperation or resignation, I think just under the surface we believe that we will be judged as substandard if we ever said, I have just enough to do, or these days my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We assume that others will admire our busy and implied successful lives. Yet we grow to become less and less impressed with the outcome of a hurried life. In the long run, does hurry really lead to a fruitful life? I'd like to read to you another quote. It's Quote Sunday. This is by Ronald Roheiser. He's a brilliant Catholic thinker. He says this, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological business, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Pathological business. It's a major block in our spiritual life. Now we might be asking the question, is it wrong to be busy? <laughs> Am I a bad Christian because I'm, I'm busy? John Ortberg will say this, that hurry is not 
a disordered schedule. It's a disordered heart. There's a world difference between being busy and being hurried. Being busy is an outward condition, a condition of the body occurs when we have many things to do. Busyness is inevitable in society today. But being hurried is different. It's an internal condition. It's a condition of the soul. It means to be so preoccupied with myself and with life that I'm unable to be fully present with God, with myself, and with other people. Symptom of that is when you're spending time with a person over coffee. You're drinking coffee and the person's chatting, but your mind wanders to something else. I have to do this. I need to get this done. I have this assignment to finish. Even right now, some of you are thinking of lunch. <laughs> hurry. Some of you are like, oh, I got this and this and this to do. I need to hurry. Andre, wrap it up. Come on, hurry up. And I'm, a, I'm unable to occupy the present moment. Busyness migrates to hurry when we let it squeeze God out of our lives. I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. I cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. You with me? A recent survey of 20,000 Christians around the world revealed that Christians worldwide identify busyness and constant overload as a major distraction from God. Dr. Michael Zaccarelli, who conducted this survey from his post as Associate Professor of Management at Charleston University, describes a vicious cycle prompted by cultural conformity. Let's have that slide up. Michael Ziccarelli. He says, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live life, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, and then the cycle begins again. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. We are busy, we're we are, we are overwhelmed, stressed up, pent up, frenetic on the edge because we have adopted a yoke that is not of Christ. When we experience heavy burden of life, my suggestion to you is that you have moved out of the way of Jesus and adopted the way of the world. Famous psychology Carl Jung who developed the idea of introverts, extroverts, whose work was used to develop the Mouse-Briggs test INTJ, anyone? INTJ? No? Oh, I have a witness. We are like what? 5%? 2%? We are special. <coughs> That's what I tell myself in the morning. He developed INTJ, uh, developed Mars-Big Test. He famously said that hurry isn't of the devil, it is the, the, the devil. <laughs> hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Extreme statement. Am I saying live life passively with a haphazard? Heck care attitude. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should never hurry. If your child okay, is walking towards a stove, a hot stove, and is about to put his hand into the fire, you better hurry. Right? You know, it's, it's common sense. It's normal to hurry when there's an emergency or a situation that demands for it. You hurry. That's normal and expected. But it is different to live in a state of hurry. It's different to live in a state of hurry where you're constantly reactive, rushed, and on the edge. Researchers tell us of this thing called adrenaline dependence. It's become one of the greatest addiction problems in our culture today. God has designed our bodies wonderfully and it's a great gift that we have this instinctive adrenal flight or fight response to danger that infuses us with vitality and well-being. When necessary, adrenaline and cortisol flows through our bodies to alert us of danger, energizes us when we're challenged, 
and think quickly in emergencies. But it's a problem for us when we live lives in a continual state of urgency. Hear me in this. We live lives in a continual state of urgency. Viewing daily stresses as emergencies, unfortunately, this fast-paced, super-productive, determined life of those who rely on adrenaline is not only socially acceptable, it is admired and rewarded in our society. Without realizing it, we keep calling up adrenaline to help us feel alive and to some degree important. Busyness is attractive and appealing to those who struggle to find significance in life. I know I'm reading a lot from my notes, but you know, I, 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 what, I'm, what I'm trying to do today is you know, set a context to set the foundations for something I believe we will be exploring, talking about for years to come. All right, so follow me. Are we good? We're alive? Yes. Read to you another story. Half a century ago, an upholsterer from San Francisco made a curious discovery. He was caught up to a cardiologist's office to reupholster some chairs in the waiting room. When he looked at the furniture, he wondered immediately what was wrong with the people, the patients. Only the front edge of the seats and the first few inches of the armrest were worn out. People don't wear out chairs this way, he said to himself. Five years later, in 1959, doctors Meyer Friedman and Ray Roseman began to put the pieces together. They had noticed an odd pattern shared by many of their cardiac patients, a pattern that centered on a chronic sense of time urgency. How many of you can relate to that? chronic sense of time urgency. Patients showed irritability at being made to wait in line, Singaporean, had difficulty relaxing, and were anxious over delays. Obsessed with not wasting a moment, they spoke quickly, like I'm doing now, interrupted often, hurried those around them, oi, hurry up, and were forever rushing. Rushing from what? Rushing to what? We don't know. Hence the waiting room chairs, the patients sat on the edge of their seats, nervously fidgeting at the arms of the chairs as they watched time tick by. We have devices to help people fidget these days. That tells you a lot. Sorry, use. <clears throat> the cardiologists called this new disease, they call it a disease, hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. According to Friedman, hurry sickness arises from an insatiable desire to accomplish too much or take part in too many events in the amount of time that's available. The heuristic person is unable to acknowledge that he can do a finite number of things. As a consequence, he never ceases trying to stuff more and more events in his constantly shrinking reserves of time. Can I put it to you that the solution to the limitation of time is not more time? Some of you think that, oh, if only I had more time, then distressed this hurriness would be solved and resolved. My suggestion to you is that if I give you more time, let's say I give you 28 hours in a day, you would do the very same thing. You would stuff more things in and be hurried anyway. The solution to hurriness is not more time. The solution to hurriness is to simplify your life to the bare essentials, to the necessary. An artist once said that we ought to get rid of the unnecessary so that the necessary may speak. We have too much clutter, too much unnecessary stuff in our life. Psychologists uh, describe 10 signs of hurry sickness. I'd like to take, take you through the 10 signs. You can evaluate yourself. 10 signs of hurry sickness. Irritability. How many of you are irritated right now? I'm taking so long. Hypersensitivity. 
Let's not talk about that, just in case you get sensitive. Restlessness. What is restlessness? When you're at rest, you cannot rest. Okay? Simple. Compulsive overworking. Emotional numbness. Escapist behaviors. What does escapist behaviors mean? It means that, you know, when you have free time, you binge on Netflix. You, you know, do all, stuff, all sorts of stuff to preoccupy yourself. You're disconnected from your identity and calling. You're not able to attend to human needs. I've heard of people who game and forget to eat. You're hoarding energy. You're afraid that you won't have energy for the next day. And the last one is slippage in our spiritual practices. You are not up to speed and up to date with your spiritual disciplines. How many of you? 7 out of 10? 8 out of 10? I scored a 3 out of 10. Hurried people think that they are adding to their life when in fact they are subtracting from the very things that give them life. Hurried people have a diminished capacity to love. The first trait Paul mentioned when he described love in that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, love is patient. And patience is an unhurried virtue. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time and time is the one thing that hurried people do not have. Hurry is driven by anxiety, by a lack of trust, performance anxiety, or the expectation of others, or more accurately and often, the perceived expectation of others. Here's the truth. Are you ready? Busyness is inevitable. Come on. But we can play a part in how it affects the state of our soul, how we live out our values and commitments, and health, both spiritually and physically. Are you following me? Here's an article that appeared in a newspaper a few years ago about Tattoo, the Basset Hound. The reporter wrote, Tattoo didn't plan on going for a run that evening, but when his owner accidentally shut the door on the poor dog's leash in the car door and drove away, Tattoo had little choice. Now, thankfully, when he started driving, a policeman saw the poor dog's dilemma and pulled the car over. The cop had one interesting observation. He said, that the basset hound was picking up his feet and putting them down as fast as he could. Amazingly, his short legs got him up to 25 miles an hour in spite of being rolled over several times. He has not asked to go on an evening walk for a really long time. So often, that's what Christians look like, being dragged and tossed around by the demands of life. But Christ offers us a new way of living, a yoke that's easy, that's light, his way of living, what Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message translation, calls the rhythms of grace. The rhythms of grace. What essentially makes up a rhythm? You know, a rhythm, it, you have the beats in the rhythm, but you get rhythmed not just by the beats, but by the pauses in between the beats. There's a rhythm that we are called to do life with. And today I want to explore some rhythms that you can you know, put into practice in your life, incorporate into your everyday living to eliminate the vicious cycle of hurry. It may seem counterintuitive, inefficient, but I believe it will deeply enrich your faith and walk in God. I'll do so quickly. The first thing we call to, it's ironic to do it quickly, I'll do it slowly. The first practice that I would like to suggest that we ought to put into practice in our life. It's the practice of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. 
silence and solitude. What makes solitude so important? Solitude is one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that so often relentlessly mold us. Luke's gospel, uh, I have two scriptures, let's put that up, says this of Jesus, that at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Come on. I like this scripture because it lets me take some time away from you. Awesome people. The next slide, Luke chapter 5, says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Despite a life full of ministry responsibilities and opportunities, Jesus practiced a pattern of disengagement in order to be with the Father. Luke uses this word often. He didn't say that Jesus chose the early morning communion with the Father once or here and there or on an occasion. This consistent prayer time was a regular part of Jesus' daily life. Henry Nouwen, a brilliant writer, he writes this about the pattern of prayer and solitude that Jesus modeled in his life. Let's have that quote up. It says this, In the midst of a busy schedule of activities, healing suffering people, casting out devils, responding to impatient disciples, traveling from town to town, and preaching from synagogue to synagogue, we find these quiet words. In the morning, long before dawn, he got up and left the house and went off to a lonely place and prayed there. Next slide. In the lonely place, Jesus finds the courage to follow God's will and not his own. To speak God's words and not his own. To do God's work and not his own. It is in the lonely place where Jesus enters into intimacy with the Father. That his ministry is born. For most of us, you know, we live life like Martha did. Jesus gently rebukes Martha in Luke 10. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. Truth is, we are anxious and troubled about many things. And in silence and solitude, that anxiety, that mistrust, that lack of faith gets worked out. Amen? Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. The truth is this, we often suppress the deeper issues of the heart by surrounding ourselves with noise and activity. History will point to 2007 as the day that human interaction and human living was drastically changed. And in 2007, the iPhone was invented. We carry infinity in our pockets, limitless capabilities. The ability to be reached at all times and the ability to reach others to gain information at all times. I remember I was uh, on a, a mission trip uh, to Haiti once and, uh, you know, we were part of Haiti where there was no uh, phone service and it was a 14-day mission trip, come on, 14-day with uh, no phones. And remember on day three, you know, I was experiencing some withdrawal symptoms. I remember taking out my phone and going on the safari just to click safari, but nothing would pop up. I'll go on Facebook to refresh the page, but nothing will pop up. I'll read all the old stories. I was on withdrawal addiction. Withdrawal addiction. Now, there's a study that shows that young adults today touch their phones more than 2,000 times, a total of 86 sessions, uh, spending up to two to five hours a day just on their phones. And remember on day three, as I was experiencing this withdrawal addiction, I was suddenly overwhelmed with this immense fear that something was wrong with my family. Um, I remember sitting there, being worried, being anxious, 
having this irrational fear that something happened to my family, that someone died, someone was injured, and I was uncontactable and I couldn't contact them, couldn't check in. And I was almost paralyzed with fear for that whole day. Sometimes it's in silence and solitude that the deeper issues of your heart, the mistrust, the insecurities in your heart, they, they get surfaced. Henry Nouwen calls silence the furnace of transformation. It is where the impurities of your heart, is where the deeper issues, the stuff that you have let and allowed uh, the noise of uh, the world you lived in, uh, the, the responsibilities, the activities that you partake in, to, you have allowed them to cover up. And in silence and solitude, when these things are stripped away, that's when the deeper issues of the heart, they surface and are remedied by the Lord. Next practice we're called to adopt is the practice of Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. Sabbath. Hebrews 4, verse 9 and 11 says, It's a Sabbath. Rest still remains for the people of God. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Sabbath keeping is more than just a day of rest. It is a way of ordering one's entire life around a pattern of working six days and then resting on the seventh. God did so in the creation story. It's an approach to living in time that helps us honour the rhythm of things, work and rest, fruitfulness and dormancy, giving and receiving, being and doing, activism and surrender. I'd like to present to you four R's of Sabbath. Come on, four R's. This is what we are are supposed to do on Sabbath. We are called to relent, to stop thinking about the workload that you have to go back to, stop working on a proposal that's due later this week, stop reading endless articles on Facebook, stop thinking about the people you need to call, stop checking emails on your phone, just stop, cease and relent. Next thing we're called to do is rest. And everyone has activities that give them back more than they take. For some, it might be cycling, crocheting maybe. For others, it might be watching movies, sleeping in, enjoying a good cup of coffee, taking a hike. There's more work than rest for me. You know, it's personal. Whatever allows you to lose your tense shoulders and take a deep breath out, go for it. Call to rest. Third R is we're called to rejoice and Christians can rejoice in Sabbath because we have a Savior that accomplished everything we need. If resting is a deep breath out, rejoicing is a deep breath in. It's feeling of the Spirit of being reminded who Jesus is and how deeply He loves us. And the last R, Reflect. One of my personal struggles is simply stopping long enough to consider where I'm at personally with God. It's all well and good doing work for God, but unless that work with God, unless it is work with God, it will never be fruitful. Call to reflect, to think great thoughts about Jesus. Drinking deeply from the wellspring of grace. Relent, rest, rejoice, reflect. Sabbath. Next practice, we're called to slow down. Slowing down. As our culture becomes more and more hurried, we have to learn the value of, spiritual, of the spiritual discipline of slowing as a practice and a means of developing patience. You know you have a problem <clears throat> when you count the amount of cars at the red light and then you find the lane that has the least amount of cars and then you switch lanes at the red light. 
Or if you are a dude, and most dudes do this, if you are at a car at a stoplight and then there's like two cars, you would tell yourself, oh, you'll compare the model and make of both cars and figure out which car would go faster and switch over to that lane. You have a problem. At a supermarket, if you have a choice between two checkout lines, you'll find yourself counting how many people are in, in each line, multiplying the number by the number of items per cart, and then pick the road of less resistance. You know you have a problem if you honk at a car in front of you just because they haven't moved in the last 0.5 seconds. Or when the green light flashes and the car doesn't take off immediately and you let a friendly honk. You know you have a problem. The practice of slowing, come on, involves cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. And waiting is such a cuss word in our culture today, but it's so essential to the development of our spiritual being. Learn to wait. Learn to stroll instead of taking a brisk walk. When I first came back from the US, I was so caught up by the pace of walking and which Singaporeans walk. Singaporeans are known to be some of the fastest walkers on planet Earth. How come you still have people who struggle with? For drivers, you know, what, what does it mean to practice slowing? Drive on the slow lane every now and then. Oh. Heresy, pastor. <laughs> Drive on a slow lane, you know? Okay, okay. How about this? The practice of slowing. Drive the speed limit. Drive the speed limit. Ooh. Another practice that we can adopt as we slow down is to declutter. Everybody say declutter. To slow down the pace of life. Life is cluttered when we are weighed down by the burden of all the things we have failed to say no to. Then comes the clutter of forgetting important dates, of missing appointments, and of not falling through. Simplify your life. If you were to boil your life down, or what are the bare essentials? What are the necessary things? Keep to the necessary things. Live simply. Take away the things that clutter. Take away the things that draw your attention away from what is important. I remember when I was studying in the US, I was committed to watching 10 TV shows. I was invested in these 10 TV shows because most of them, they run for seven, eight seasons and they leave you on cliffhangers on, at the end of every season. So you are emotionally and all sorts of invested in these shows and I was invested in 10 shows. And I remember coming back to Singapore and holding a job and realizing that I couldn't keep up. You know, on Saturdays, I'm like, people ask me, Andre, what are you doing? I'm like, catching up. Catching up on what? My TV shows. So that was one of the things I had to declutter. Now I watch three, okay, from 10. Jesus often had much to do, but it, it never, he never did it in a way that severed the life-giving connection he had between him and the Father. He never did it in a way that interfered with his ability to give love when love was called for. He observed a regular practice of withdrawing from activity for the sake of solitude and prayer. Jesus was often busy, but never hurried. Are you with me? Last practice as I close. Also S. It's the practice of Scheduling. Scheduling. Important. Schedule. 
you know, uh, me and Amy have been living in a, a, a flat that we rent for the last uh, few months, you know, and on the 6th uh, of every month, you know, um, that's when I pay rent to my landlord. And every 6th, um, on the 6th, on, on the you know, that's when I sent out my rent. And uh, because I need to pay rent every month or else I'll be evicted, I set up a standing order thing and so money goes out on the 6th of every month to my landlord because, you know, that need is going to keep reoccurring and therefore I set up a system or I set up uh, something in place to make sure that I get the rent out on time. Here's the suggestion. Any need that is repetitive will require a system to mitigate it. Any need that's repetitive will require a system to mitigate it. Often we live life pushing ourselves to the edge and at the end of it clamoring for a break. We're not supposed to oscillate from despair to fulfillment and then back to despair. It's often heard, I need a break. I need a holiday. I'm at the edge. I'm burnt out. I'm burdened. I need a break. I need a holiday. Can I suggest to you that that's not the life that Christ has called you to live? We're not supposed to live lives of uh, escapism. You know, when we are so frenetic and hurried, you know, in the throes of life and then Every now and then, every year, we take five days off and then I'm at, I'm at rest, I'm fulfilled. And then you oscillate back to despair. But we are called to reign and rule in life. The yoke that Jesus promises you, that burden, that burden that's easy, that is light, it's not something you experience once a year. It's a lifestyle that you're called to live by and with. Scheduling is a really practical thing. It's putting structure, structure to ensure that what is important gets accomplished and what is unimportant gets put aside. Someone once said that we achieve inner peace in our souls when our values align with our schedule. One of the tips to scheduling is to do this, to schedule margin, free space, both small amounts and large. Put margin in between activities and put large chunks of margin in your day and work. Have time to rest to relax, to recalibrate. I remember a season in my life where I was doing a bunch of meetings with people and I recall one day where I scheduled four back-to-back meetings and each meeting was a two-hour meeting and so I was at Starbucks for eight hours back-to-back. Very smart. You know, I was trying to be inefficient. I was trying to be e- efficient. And so I, I was there at 10 in the morning and I only left at six in the evening and it was two hours back-to-back. There was no space in between. And you know when you have a coffee meeting with people, you are supposed to drink coffee. And so, you know, for every meeting, I ordered, and this was in the US, a venti caramel macchiato. And that sucker has four shots in that and tons of sugar. And, you know, I had a caramel macchiato at every meeting, you know. At the end of it, I remember, my heart was racing. My hand was trembling. I vaguely recall like an out-of-body experience where I saw myself having a conversation with a person while standing here, you know. It was just bad, just horrible. From that day onwards, and this is a true story, I never drank coffee with any sugar in it, as God intended for it to be. <laughs> it's my theory, if you want something black, caffeinated, and sugar, you drink Coca-Cola, not coffee. Coffee for grown-ups. <laughs> That's one of the things I learned. But the other thing I learned is to, to have space in between to have times where you get to recalibrate and rest because catch this okay 
at the end of that day, on my last meeting, how many of you know that the person that was speaking to the other person that was doing the meeting wasn't the best version of myself? And sometimes we shortchange the people around us of good quality relationship because we are in a hurry, because we are so packed and so busy. Kids, I have 15 minutes for you to spend some time with me and then, you know, I got to check on some email. So get your A game on. We are, we are hurried. And when we are in a state of being hurried, we are incapable of true, authentic, quality relationship. Amen? Another thing about scheduling is this. <laughs> Catch this. I know this might be offensive to some of you, but do one thing at a time. Quit trying to multitask. Your brain can do multiple things at once, but your focus can only be on one task at a time. Sometimes the quality of our work is compromised because we try to do so many things at the same time. Do each thing deliberately and slowly. For example, try savoring your food when you eat. One of the things I'm learning to do is chew. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. What's the recommended amount of time to chew? Like, what, 30 or something? Yeah, that, that is tough. Schedule chewing in your meal times. Make sure you have enough time to eat. Not a 15-minute lunch break, you know. Just make sure you have enough time to eat. I'd like to close with uh, a couple of quotes. And there's a man named uh, Wang Mingdao. And Mingdao means making the name... Wei, okay, never mind. Wang Mingdao, and he was a pioneer of the house church movement in China and spent, and uh, uh, a writer once spent some time with uh, this pastor, Wang Mingdao, a pioneer of the house church in China. And this pastor recorded this exchange. Wang Mingdao asked the pastor, young man, how do you walk with God? The pastor listed off a set of disciplines such as Bible study and prayer to which Wang Mingdao mischievously retorted, wrong answer. To walk with God, you must go at walking pace. To walk with God, you must go at walking pace. And Wang Mingdao was a man who was a pioneer and he was persecuted for his faith and for his efforts in building the church in China. He was thrown in prison multiple times. And this, he said this as well, one of the key to the faith of the suffering church is this. God does things slowly. He works with the heart and we are often too quick. We have so much to do, so much in fact, that we never really commune with God as He intended when He created Eden, the perfect fellowship garden. For Wang Mingdao, persecution or the cell in which he found himself was the place where he returned to walking pace, slowing down, stilling himself enough to commune properly with God. You're familiar with that passage in Psalms 46. Be still and know that I am God. Too often we want to know God in a hurry. But it's in stillness, it's in solitude, it's in silence where we commune with the Almighty. That's something you all have to learn to do better, myself included. Psychologists are once said that the people who struggle with this hurry sickness are People like, people like doctors, lawyers, and pastors. Not me, other pastors. <laughs> I'm very in the moment. Our culture today values this state of being hurried and being constantly busy. It's synonymous with efficiency and productivity. 
But catch this, in my preoccupation with efficiency, I miss much that God wants to do in my life and say to me in the moment. Hurry rushes toward the destination and fails to enjoy the journey. What if the key to us experiencing what Jesus calls abiding in the vine, what Paul calls prayer without ceasing, what Brother Lawrence calls the practice of the presence, experiencing the reality of God all around us, all the time. What if the key to that, to experiencing that, is to not be hurried, is to have moments of stillness, quiet, solitude. I believe that modeling our life according to the unhurried pace of Jesus' life and ministry could be a healing and empowering vision for modern-day Christians. Yet many of us measure our faithfulness to God by how many tasks we get done for Him or how many meetings we attend to plan His kingdom work. As glad as He is for our service, I believe He is even more pleased when we give Him our attention and our friendship. May we discover the easy yoke of Jesus and find rest for our souls in the midst of the hustle and bustle of life. May we be unhurried. Can we stand?